64, a chess podcast, is sponsored by AIM Chess. Use code DAVID30 to get 30% off of your subscription and start improving your chess today. back to 64 a chess podcast i'm your host david i'm very very delighted to be joined by gm eugene perlstein today he is from boston you're currently based in boston yes i am yeah Mm -hmm. and uh it took him 20 years to get the grandmaster title we're going to be talking about chess improvement today we're going to be talking about the national open we're talking about otb chess we're going to be talking about uh chess theory a little bit uh and we're going to be talking about chess stories because that's what everybody wants to hear so Without further ado, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, thank you, David. I'm doing well. So I guess we'll just get right into it, like I always say. Um, first of all, I want to just give a shout out to Aim Chess for sponsoring the podcast. Once again, you can use code DAVID30 to get 30% off your subscription to Aim Chess. Uh, you can also find the account on Twitter at 64podcast. You can also find Eugene on Twitter at Eugene, P-E-R-E-L, Eugene Peril. Uh, where he asks a lot of great questions, puts some nice puzzles. Uh, so you can get a lot of uh, chess improvement out of that. So let's uh, let's start by talking about the uh, Las Vegas Open that's going on right now. So do you have any you're, – you're a chess coach. Um, yes. And you also have a lot of friends, as you told me before you started recording, who are in the tournament right now. So I guess uh, – are you watching from afar and just enjoying? Were you considering maybe playing – yeah, this is one of those tournaments that's uh, always fun to play in because it brings in a lot of players all over the world, you know, because it's Vegas and people uh, people like to gamble, people like to play chess, play poker, but brings a lot of poker players. But for me, um, for primarily it's because of my friends and students who are playing. As a matter of fact, I just uh, played the training, a uh, couple of training games with international master Kostya. Kavutsky from the Bay Area, also renowned chess coach. And both Kostya and uh, also David Pruce, they run um, kind of adult improver educational uh, Twitch stream chess dojo. And the couple, both of them are actually playing. And a couple of my students are playing as well. So I'm following their games. And mostly just kind of uh, from afar, looking at the games and enjoying the games of top uh, gms who are there as well yeah i think it's also it's been pretty funny because um i guess if if we're comparing it to stocks i mean there's a you could you should be investing a lot right now in these kinds of like vlogs that are going on because i know a lot of a lot of these guys they'll go play and they'll go back to the hotel room and make a quick 20 minute video about the game they just played and it's really funny because uh uh i mean this is i guess it's the first like serious like big american over the board chess tournament and you have a lot of guys like like gotham chess who kind of like he he, he said uh, i'm never going to play otb chess again and then you know he had a lot of success online and now he has all these fans and no and he's playing there and he's actually doing very well he beat uh christopher Yu last night um 
but I, I think that's really, really funny because um, I was watching Hikaru's stream a couple of days ago and he was saying like, why, why is Levy like making videos? He should be focusing on the tournament. But I, I just think it's, you know, there's, there's this, there's this big uh, like economy right now. And like watching these like chess improvement videos. And it's like the guys like Kostya and David Proust and Gotham. And I mean, Eric Rosen, and they're all like, playing OTB chess. I mean, I, I can't imagine like what that would be like for me to just, you know, be paired up against one of those guys as an open tournament. So uh, I don't know. To me, that's, that's just really funny. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. And I think primarily for Gotham chess and, uh, uh, and, and those guys, it's not really about the seriousness, you know, competing for money or norms. You know, they really love chess. And, you know, their main thing is streaming, right? So since they miss OTB chess a lot, this is kind of combined, combining to, to do their passion to play chess, right? And to do a little bit of streaming or talk about their games to engage the audience. And actually a lot of players get a lot of energy from interacting with their audience. And uh, whereas some players like may want to go into a shell and be closed off and just focus on their games. It really depends on the right. personality. Uh, you know, some people, you know, are antisocial. Some people are extremely social and get energy from from people around them. So I think there is no kind of one approach for everyone to do well in a tournament. Whatever works for you, works for you. Yeah, I mean, I also imagine. I think it'd be pretty funny. Like you imagine, like at Las Vegas, you like you have a bad game and you just go to the casino afterwards. I mean, that that's pretty. That's 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 uh, a pretty nice combination. Like chess and poker, are like kind of like the opposite ends of of like game theory in terms of like luck versus uh, skill. Like yeah, there's definitely uh, there's definitely connection. I think between uh, chess players and poker players, the name two names come to mind is Greg Shahadi and his sister Jennifer Shahadi, which uh, they grew up pretty much uh, as teenagers competing in the same tournaments, and I was in the U.S junior championships i play a lot of uh games versus them and then they both sort of became successful poker players in their own right and uh, uh i feel like there's a lot of connection there yeah i mean also like uh there was the like the poker stars championship i think that's what it was called on uh on twitch where they had all these like poker players who were like being paired up with streamers to uh to play against each other it's kind of like pog champs i also thought that was very interesting and um even like Daniel Negreanu, he's a he's a big fan of of chess, and uh, that's so, right, that's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting, and so you know now now people are in Vegas playing OTB chess, but um, to be honest, like I started playing OTB chess again, like now that things are opening up, and I I have really struggled to kind of like translate that like two D uh, board into three D. So I'm wondering if you could maybe give some insights. Like, do you, do you talk about this sort of thing with your students? Like, how, what what would you say to somebody who you know, maybe need some help adjusting from from what they see in like two dimensions, like openings and tactics to a- Yeah, no, this is a great question. As a matter of fact, um, I, I recently have a new student uh, who is a master, you know, 2200 plus player who like everybody else has been out of chess for at least a year. Uh, and then he also asked me this question that, you know, he doesn't feel like he's getting anything out of the blitz games uh, in the 2D board online. And what I recommended him is, to just do very basic thing, take out the real chess board and set up, you know, practical chess puzzles either from a book or exercises, and try to like use the real chess board environment and solve it. Um, it has been working well for him. 
Uh, it also worked for Jennifer Yu, who won the US Women's Championship a few years ago. Uh, I remember she said that she was so busy with school that the only thing she could do to prepare for the tournament is take out a chessboard and you know do about one or two hours a day of of these puzzles but you know the actual physical chessboard which is the connection you have to the otb chess because that's how you play you, you know you don't use the 2d board you use the 3d board and I, I think people sort of they have the chess set but maybe they're a little too lazy to take it out and set it up because with one click on a button you you're on the computer you get a game it's very easy right it's uh, you get a result right away but I feel like for more serious OTB players, using the actual physical chessboard will give you more benefit, even though it does may seem like it takes forever to set things up and you know actually look at the board to start thinking. You may you, you may want to try to make a couple of impulsive moves, right? Which may not be the right answer for the puzzle, especially for the more complex puzzles. But I think this is the right way to do it. And I guess like when we're talking about like, like, you know, maybe doing like practical chess puzzles. Um, I know there are, there are a lot of books, especially recently that have come out. Like there's that one book I see on, on chess Twitter, like the, like the compositions by Sam Lloyd made. It yeah. Choose, yeah. Made it choose the, blindfold. Yeah. Those are great. Yeah. 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 That I'm actually, I'm, I'm considering buying that book. Um, but um, something I'm kind of curious about is like, just to speaking about books, how do those come in? into chess improvement you, you uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about you know um your own like chess story mm -hmm. and the fact that you had this huge chess library that you were able to access um over time um at what point do you think like chess books become important for an aspiring tournament player yeah that's a great question uh, i would probably say that most chess kids uh these days they don't really you know read chess books <laughs> as people used to study chess because of course with computers and engines and, and the online servers and videos and YouTube videos, there's a lot of uh, information. And whereas an actual physical chess book is sort of like almost an outdated way of studying chess. Um, but I, I still believe that especially for adult improvers, uh, reading chess books could be beneficial. The problem of course, is there are too many chess books as there is in general too much information if you have a good coach or even a friend who is a little bit stronger than you, um, you probably want recommendations. You know, what works for one person uh, may not be necessarily uh, for the other person. For example, two people could be in the same rating range, 1200 to 1400, but one is really, really, let's say, horrible at end games, but pretty good at tactics. And the other one is decent in end games, but misses constantly you know two three mover tactics well th there you have it right i mean it's clear that two players about the same strength have almost opposite weaknesses um so i would you know my recommendation is for the player who keeps missing basic tactics is to solve you know set, set up tactical exercises again i prefer from books but obviously you can use apps and uh online tools right they all kind of supplement each other but you should probably invest in a very good tactical puzzle book where the games are not computer generated from Blitz games, but from actual human games, grandmaster games picked by an expert in the field. And then, you know, work on that. And vice versa, if you are really bad at end games, uh, there is an amazing number of end games book, end game books, you know, 
I still prefer like Capablanca's book, for example, where he talks about, you know, basic uh, end games and, and just annotating his own games. Obviously, Rubinstein games are great uh, and, and so forth. So I feel like books do matter, especially if you want to improve. And there are a lot of really good books out there, but you probably want to have access to an expert uh, who can kind of navigate through that process and recommend you some good books. So you're basically the second or third person in like a month to, to tell me on this podcast to study the classics. Oh, yeah, uh, so. absolutely. Yeah. If you want to go far in chess, you know, if you want to reach like, you know, at least 2000 level or maybe master, uh, I don't really see how you can completely avoid sliding the classics. I mean, I've definitely seen a couple of examples. Maybe Nakamura is the most uh, famous example, Hikaru Nakamura, who probably did not study his classics. But actually, if you look at Nakamura, I mean, he got to as far as top 10 in the world. But somehow, whenever he played Magnus, who is basically the uh, perfect example who studied every single classical game and remembers every single classical game, whenever the game got to like an end game and Magnus had to recall some classical game, an idea that he's seen before, he would always beat Hikaru. Um, so to me, that's an even greater case. You know, even though Nakamura got to be top 10 in the world, absolutely phenomenal chess player, but still there's somebody better than you, right? And Magnus relied heavily on the classics and proved uh, that that is the key to success. Not just top 10, he was number two in 2015. I think he was actually like second in the world. Oh, wow. Like, uh, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> like, uh, extended, I think like almost a year he was, he was for, but yeah, like you said, and um, yeah, I mean, de I definitely, I recently, I ordered two copies of uh, like Capablanca's 60 best end games. Yeah. I think that's a good uh, book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and one copy is uh, I, I just gave away in a giveaway that I have to, now I have to ship. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to get into that book. Cause I also, I, I think for me, and this is something else I wanted to ask you, you know, just talking to, to a grandmaster, somebody who's, you know, devoted many years of his life into chess. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned before, like this example of like two players in this, like, you know, early club player level, like 1200 to 1400 that, you know, one guy's really good at tactics. One guy's really like decent at end games, but very very varying weaknesses basically among two people who are who are like numerically at even playing strength right when you when you talk about the improving player the like the so-called adult improvers as we say on on uh on chess twitter how how does a a player like identify his or her own weaknesses i think it's gonna be very difficult to be objective even if i were to take myself as an example right if i were to kind of make a list of my weaknesses you know, it may not be perfect <laughs> and I'm a grandmaster. So you probably need an outside person who can go over your games. So when I was growing up and studying both in, in Russia, I had a coach who was my dad and he ran a chess club. We'll talk more about that. And uh, later when I came to the U.S., I had one of the best uh, chess coaches, you know, top talent, maybe in chess, top 10 player at one point, Roman Jinjikashvili who went over my games and pointed things to me that I have never heard of. And I was already probably 2,200 plus, 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid. So you definitely want a little bit of uh, an outside help to identify exactly what you need. And that's, you know, whenever I get a new student, I immediately sense 
what their weaknesses are just from looking at their games and from looking at how they think because it's easy for me right i've seen it all <laughs> and i can pick up on that like if it's a kind of recurrent theme you know let's say they're only paying attention to their own ideas and they want to really execute their their moves and then when i ask them well your opponent just made a move did you ask yourself what was your opponent's idea or his intention and they look at me like well i never did i'm like well there you go there's one little tweak in your thought process that can immediately maybe add two to three hundred rating points to your game so these little tweaks is really hard to um figure out for the player themselves but uh, you know having a famous coach like ginger and i also work with dorfman kasparov's coach i'll talk more about that it is is really important you get you get to see how others think and as a result they can also influence you i guess um you know i i know you you first of all are you taking new students right now um right now i'm pretty much booked but uh i would say it always changes right i sometimes right. i have uh I, I, you know, I, I have room for another student. So, you know, if people are interested, they can contact me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Um, but uh, sometimes, you know, if let's say somebody is really, really ambitious, right, who wants to become a student, um, I may give one or two lessons and kind of give them a, uh, a plan, right, to work on their own chest. Like, because really, as a, as a coach, um, you, you, you want to create a plan, roadmap for the student, point out their weaknesses, and, and they can be happily working on their own if they're hardworking and, and, and want to make progress. But, uh, but yeah, the, the long story, uh, yeah, the, the short answer is yes, I do take on uh, new students, but I'm quite busy, so there may be a wait list. Right, I got you. Um, but I'm mostly asking because I'm just more or less curious, like how active in the you know the United States or even just in general chess scene are you right now because uh you know you've been a grandmaster for many years i know you do coaching but um do you still like do you still play in, in tournaments a lot do you still uh do you still like have people you work with on your stuff yeah that's a good question i haven't played in the tournament obviously because of the pandemic and also i have a toddler so it's a little bit more you know difficult for me to travel these days to play tournaments and they're not really a lot of high level tournaments in boston area and for me, since I've played, you know, pretty much every single major tournament in the U.S. from like World Open to your average weekender tournament, it's kind of hard for me to to be to feel challenged enough because I've played all of these players before. So what I did recently, like in 2017, 2018, I played in Europe, and I played in these two big tournaments, the Isle of Man International where I actually played Magnus Carlsen, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and I played a couple of other 2,700 players, uh, David Howell and Paco Vallejo. Um, both are extremely strong players. So for me, that was a lot of fun to face people who are much, much better than me because I'm also improving and learning from those games. It's not as much fun for me to play, let's say, 2,200 players average uh, as much as you know, 24, 25, or even... I prefer 2700 so I can learn from the games. And then also I like Reykjavik Open. I've played there twice. And then 2018, I believe, I tied for four, uh, for fourth. And I had a really good tie break where I did finish fourth place, which is my kind of big <laughs> open success 
you know, tie-in for like people with people like uh, Kamsky and Elianov and, wow. and many other top GMs. What was your record in the Isle of Man against those three guys you mentioned? Um, so I lost all of those three games as expected. But if you look at the quality of the games, every single game I was actually doing, I was ahead, meaning that I was putting pressure on my opponents. I, I was white. So I got lucky that I had white in all three games. And all three games, they chose slightly inferior openings because they wanted to beat me. I mean, there was like over 150 rating point difference, right? Right. Um, and so Magnus chose the perk and kind of walked into my prep where I sacked one pawn. And I, that's the thing. Psychologically, I was not afraid to sacrifice material against these guys. So I sacked one pawn and then I sacked the second pawn. I had a pretty nice initiative. But then, as it always happens, they defended perfectly, like Magnus defended perfectly. And at one moment, I remember he thought for half an hour in one move, he had a really tough position. But then once he defended and the pressure was on me, I couldn't find a way to make progress. At one point, I remember I made the trade into an endgame up a pawn, but my pawns were doubled. And he's like an endgame virtuoso. He just grounded, ground me down after wow. that one-sided game. He was quite nice. I was the most surprising thing about Magnus is I did not feel intim intimidated at all. He was extremely polite, extremely nice at the board and after the game. And he was almost like impeccable. Like his behavior at the board was perfect, which you don't really see from, you know, like Kasparov had always this like angry uh, eyes, looks at his gazes at his opponent. And then the same I can say David Howell was extremely nice at some point. I was outplaying him the entire game. Again, he played something um, dubious, somewhat of a dubious line. But then at some point, again, there was like a time control thing where I couldn't find killer blow around move 40. So he survived to the time control, got to an end game. And then he thought, I remember, for like 40 minutes and set up this devilish trap, and I fell for it. <laughs> and I should not have lost that game. Maybe I should have won that game. But yeah, after that, trap i walked right into it and lost and he was really funny he was like oh yeah sorry sorry man i should not have won that game <laughs> he was kind of nice but again that shows you the work ethic over 2700 gm that he knew he was worse he was fighting the entire game but he was sitting there at the board working really hard and came up with this beautiful idea that many many moves deep that i fell for and uh, vallejo game i got a Nice advantage out of the opening, but I had to play extremely aggressively to follow it through. Instead, I simplified it to an end game, and I made one inaccuracy, and that was it. So wow. all three games finished in an end game, but they all sort of separate script for all of them. But in all three, I was actually better. So that gave me a lot of encouragement, and also realized that I can, you know, fight against these guys. But at some point, you know, either they're Something about you know how deep they calculate or how hard they work. What I've noticed, they all sit at the board and work at the board and work really hard through the moves. Um, to me, it was kind of an eye-opening experience because I like to walk around after I make a move and, and just kind of have like a relaxed uh, mindset uh, while my opponent's thinking. But for these guys, I mean, they really work hard at the board and. Keep in mind, this is not like three, four hours. This could be a six-hour game, right? So to have the stamina to sit there for six hours and perform at the extremely high level, I feel like that's a talent in itself. 
and uh, you got to be in top physical shape to do that. And also, I mean, they took you seriously too. I mean, that you know, they could they could have had this kind of demeanor of like, well, you know, you're an inferior opponent, whatever. You play some like bunk opening, and and but you know, I, I mean, that that's actually something I only realized um, like a couple of days ago. I was kind of like analyzing my own OTB games, and um, I was like, I, I just because you mentioned like how you like to walk around. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had one move where I, I thought for 20 minutes, made a move, and it was I also fell into a trap. And I remember thinking after, wait a minute, I can actually calculate during my opponents when they that's think right. Too. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I, it's <laughs> like I had never realized because I've always I'm so used to just like getting water, like you know, looking at other games, but like you can actually sit there and like actually continue thinking, which is obviously is more exhausting, but uh you might have more opportunities to calculate lines that you so I, I don't know. For me, that was uh, kind of an eye-opening experience as well. Um, but I mean, I can't. I mean, that's that's amazing that you got to play. Uh, got to play Magnus. I mean, I would have been star starstruck personally because uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, but I think that also it tells you like, even if you're like let's say like 1600 and you face somebody who's like 2000 over the board, you play playing for initiative is important. Absolutely, playing. yeah. You have to really play according to the needs of the position. Um, you know, in certain positions, especially if you're white and you're aggressive and you're attacking. It doesn't matter who your opponent is. You have to listen to what the position tells you, right? Whereas a lot of people make the mistake on thinking, okay, I'm better and I'm playing a high-rated opponent. I'm just going to not do anything crazy and play quietly, right? Almost trade. But actually, that's going to backfire because you're going to go into some equal endgame and you're going to get outplayed. So that's, that's also the wrong strategy. And I mean, when you were at this Isle of Man, was it like... Did you just get like a text on your phone that oh you're matched up against Magnus Carlson like 30 minutes before the game or like do you have like actual time to prep against him or I guess I'm wondering how do you prep against somebody like that? Yeah, good question. So unlike the U.S. in Europe, it's one game a day, so that means you actually have a whole day to prep. So the game let's say is like 3 p.m. right, and the night before you get pairings. So like you know 11, 10, 11 p.m. At some point, you get a pairing. So some people choose two approach. You know, there are two approaches. Some people say, I'm not even going to look who I play. I'm just going to sleep, get as much rest as I can, and wake up in the morning and start my prep. And the prep is usually about one to two hours. You don't want to go too much prep because if your opponent plays a line you didn't look at and you, 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 you know, you're tired of the board from looking at other lines, that's not great either. You want to have a perfect balance where you're not doing zero prep, but you're doing pretty good prep. Maybe ideally you already have a file or you're lying a certain opening. You just review it and uh, feel pretty comfortable. And so I think I, I don't remember if I, I think, oh yeah, I was having dinner with a couple of my uh, friends like IMs uh, and we got text messages during the dinner and they're like, you're playing Magnus. (laughs) (laughs) and i was both shocked like terrified and then happy like like one of those two like neither one neither one of those two emotions sort of overpowered me it was two emotions at the same time like terrified and shocked and happy at the same time (laughs) yeah wow you know i i last may i i talked about this on my podcast before but for new listeners um who maybe haven't heard the story before i i entered a simul I saw MVL post that he tweeted that he was going to play some Leech Simul. 
And I just entered. I was like, well, I'm not going to win this. And I surprisingly, I get an email from like Team MVL. Oh, you've been selected to be the simul. Please send your Lee Chess name. I played a simul against MVL. And I also did prep. I mean, it was, I kind of was thinking, how do I, at the time, like a 1500, how do I prep against a Super Grandmaster? Not just a Super Grandmaster, but also like one of my favorite players. So, um, and I remember like I basically sat in my room the day before instead of, I, I, I do like astrophysics. So I, instead of doing my, my, my astrophysics work I had to do for the day, I, um, I kind of slacked and I did like, like many hours. I looked at the dragon. And I was like, okay, hopefully he plays one E4. Mm-hmm. I play the dragon and hopefully I learned all these critical lines, like 14 moves deep. I like prepared the Chinese dragon. Yep. Um, and he actually, he played right into my prep. And, you know, I thought I went like 14 moves deep in the, into the line that I learned the most. And I was going right into it, like 14 moves. And I was like, wow, I'm doing really good. Suddenly he plays a novelty. And um, like five moves later, my position is horrible. And oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, and you know, the minute, so like I did all this prep in the opening and it's like, but um, I didn't really know how to play the position properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got punished for it pretty badly. Then I missed this, uh, this, it wasn't a good move, but I missed this really interesting, like Bishop sacrifice, like for two, two pawns, you know, the dragon on, I to sacrifice my dragon right, for two right. pawns mm-hmm. basically to like completely open up his king side. And who knows if I would have been able to get anything against him. Um, but I mean, Ivan Lubacic won a game against him in that. So uh, who knows? Like I, you know, it was a really fun experience in any case, but, um, I mean, it's, it's always like, I, I kind of like, I would also love, to, I, I love getting games against much better players because like you said, like you, anybody can learn something from these games, even Matt can learn something from his games. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I used to play the dragon related to your story as a kid all my life. And then I was really afraid at some point of the Yugoslav attack when people kind of crashing through in my king. And that's sort of the segue for why I became a fan of the accelerated dragon, where you stop uh, White from casting long and co-authored my book, Chess Openings uh, uh, Explained series for Black and for White with Jinji and Albert. And uh, I feel like for people who study openings, especially like the sh- super sharp lines casting opposite sides of the dragon, right? It's a lot of fun. But also, like like you said, you can be 14 moves deep. And if you're not quite familiar with the position, and if you make a little bit of an inaccuracy against a top player, it doesn't really matter if it's MVL or, or you know, somebody a little bit stronger than you. You can find yourself in a lot of trouble. And uh, that's where the opening knowledge and experience really do help. Yeah. No, definitely. And I also, now that I, I've already reached like 1900 and now I'm, I'm really starting to like seriously study openings, but the advice I got from my coach is uh, not really to study openings because, because you know, they're good. Like I could play like Sveshnikov or, you know, these, these like the, right, the, right. the you know, Nidorf, uh, these kind of like the Rolls Royce of, of chess, but like the openings I play, I'm familiar and comfortable with the ideas. So I like, I play Karo Khan and like Queen's Gambit accepted actually, which a lot of people have told me, why do you play the Queen's Gambit accepted? Because it's uh, inferior opening, but I'm comfortable with the ideas. And I, I understand that I'm learning the concepts now about how to play that. So even if somebody is taking me out of book early, I, I'm not going to be suddenly uncomfortable if five moves later, I suddenly, I don't think my position can just go horribly wrong out of nowhere because I kind of know, I know how to play the position, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even if you take Queen's Gambit accepted, uh, even though, you know, people may think, oh, it's like not a fun opening. Like there's a lot of positions that you get like standard structures like IQP. Right. Uh, And if you know how to play against the IQP, 
And, uh, you know, that's part of being good at chess, right? You get all these different openings. They can all result in IQP. Like I get a lot of positions in my Accelerate Dragon when they try to play the Alapin Sicilian against me and I play against the IQP. So I feel like uh, at certain level, the general knowledge of chess and, and middle game structures sort of takes over. And like you said, you can get it in the Karakhan, you can get it in the Queen's Gambit, uh, accepted and many other openings. Uh, once you get really good at these uh, middle game structures and you understand the plans, then it doesn't really matter which openings you play. Do you have, um, actually, do you, do you have any recommend? First of all, I'm wondering, do you have any um, recommendations for a book on middle game structures? Because that's something that I definitely want to improve in. Um, but also, um, I just want to mention before, before that, that uh, I actually really struggle against Accelerated Dragon. I think of all the, the E4 openings, <laughs> it's something that I, I really, because I, I know of Dragon Theory very well, but the Accelerated mm -hmm. Dragon, I just, I get destroyed. It's always by by like stronger players who have these these tricks I'm not familiar with like right. uh, I don't know like like queen queen b6 is the early move yeah like, yeah, yeah. if you try mean? if you try to castle queenside against the accelerate dragon like basically if you play the same way as if you play against the regular dragon that's where white gets a lot of in a lot of trouble so what the top players do they either castle kingside and they put their bishop on c4 and b3 and just try to like go for small plus space or you play the march to bind which is a little bit more ambitious setup for white um and usually it's you know black tries to hold like there are a lot of end games for example and since i don't mind playing end games or slightly worse end games you know sometimes that's the price i have to pay maybe hold a couple of bad slightly worse end games as black you know in some maybe one or two critical lines but it's still far better for me than defending against some crazy attack against the regular dragon. Um, so, you know, th those are the kind of trade-offs I take as the accelerated dragon player. So this is, this, I'm getting some GM insights. I'm, I'm learning, cause I, you know, <laughs> this accelerated dragon was giving me so many problems that I was considering, like just, I, I still am considering just switching to the Alapin, like every time I see Sicilian. Right, right. Um, and uh, I don't want to do that. Cause I do love, I, I do love playing the Night Earth, like with white. I do love playing like Skevningen with white. I do love mm -hmm. playing the dragon with white. You get fun games. So absolutely I yeah. just commit to, to a completely different kind of game suddenly. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, that, that is what openings are. It's like a good serve in tennis. Like it, 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 you know, you work on that. Obviously it's very important, but uh, it can't always guarantee that you're just going to win games. You got to actually <laughs> right, do right. the rest of the work. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, now we've talked a bit about OTP chess. Um, I'm kind of, I want to hear a little bit about your story because I'm not too familiar with it. I've, I've only read a bit on Wikipedia about your major tournaments and, you know, your, your history in chess. And I've, I've, I've mm -hmm. kind of looked you up a little bit, looked at you know, like your YouTube and your, yep. your website. Um, but I, I think I'm, I'm just very interested in kind of hearing about like your, your experiences as a chess player. So I know you were born in the former USSR, like my mom. That's right. Yep. Uh, was it Zhitomir? Yeah, actually, I was born in the Ukraine part of USSR. Right. So, My mom too. You know, theoretically, you can say I'm Ukrainian, but I'm not really Ukrainian. I don't speak Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. You know, the only connection is to Ukraine is because my family is from Ukraine and I was born in Ukraine. But back then, it was all USSR. Everybody spoke Russian. Um, so there was some small cultural, you know, maybe food-wise, <laughs> that I would eat Ukrainian. But other than that, we were all taught exactly the same way in school. 
we all had the same exact books, same exact material. So, you know, theoretically, I should say I'm, I am from USSR, but nobody would really understand me because that country doesn't exist. So that's why I say I'm from Russia. People usually get that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I yeah, uh, my, half my family is from, from USSR. So I'm, I'm very, yeah, yeah it's, uh, my mom was born in Ukraine, moved, she lived in Belarus her whole life, but none of that really mattered because she doesn't speak Belarusian. She yep. speaks, uh, speaks Russian uh, with a little bit of a Belarusian flair, maybe, but for the most part, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's Russian. And she came here when she was, she was 20. And uh, at some point you came here to the United States too. That's right. So uh, my sort of chess story begins in Russia or in USSR, if you will. Uh, my dad graduated with what is equivalent of like a master's deg degree of teaching chess. So there, you can actually back then make more money, believe it or not, teaching chess than as like an engineer. Wow. So chess was part of culture. It's like, it's really hard to explain to, you know, an average American how popular chess is. I guess the only good comparison I can think of like baseball. Like, let's say you're like top baseball coach, something like that, right? So he had his own chess club in Russia, in USSR. And actually one of the benefits of uh, the system pretty much for any sport is that all sport, all activities are free for kids. You just go and sign up. Like it's all free. So that's, you know, part of the benefits, I guess, of the communist state. And so he had a chess club and I, at some point, since I was a kid, I always visit, visited him and his chess club. Right. So I got, I picked up chess sort of without even trying. It was natural to me at some point. And then, I attended chess classes right after school, started playing chess tournaments and got pretty good that I think my first, I think I learned probably the game between ages six and eight, eight probably is when I started taking my first chess lessons. And then at 10, I had my first serious chess tournament. And back then serious chess tournament was like, maybe like my championship of my city or something like that where i remember i was annotating the games i had a little notebook i would play a game i would annotate it i would analyze it so it's a quite serious approach uh already at the age of 10 and i just kept getting better with the you know access to great chess library great books one of the tricks that because my dad never pushed me to study chess but one of the tricks that he did with me is for, we had this really awesome puzzle book, chess puzzle book. For every puzzle I get, right, I get about five cents as a kid. And that was my ice cream money. <laughs> so that was my encouragement because, you know, kids my age who are also attending the chess program would be probably due in 10 to 20 puzzles. And I would be due maybe like 80, 200 or 200 puzzles, right? And, so, and at some point, like you just get better and you realize you're good at it, right? And when you're good at it, you want to keep doing it. And so I think it occurred with me at some point, I started to get really good at it. And then it sort of culminated that in, when I was 14, I tied for fourth, or I got clear fourth in all of Russia for my age group, 14 and under. And that's a big country, right? So all the top okay. players participated. There's a lot of qualifying stages to even get to that level. You can't just go. It's not like an open turn. You have to qualify. 
So I qualified and then I got fourth. And I think like after round five, I was even leading the tournament. And then I lost to the eventual winner, Yakovenko, Dmitry Yakovenko, wow. who is a you know 2,700 plus player. And uh, so that was like the highlight for me. And one other thing I should also mention that again, before I moved to the US, in, in Russia, they had these chess schools, like famous chess schools, like Karpov Chess School, Kasparov Chess School, you know, Dvoretsky Chess School. And it's not your average school. It's like you're already a pretty serious chess player, and then you have to be invited to that school. So it's like almost for like the elite athletes. It's very hard to get invitations. And then my dad brought me and his other student to um, I guess you can call it the Karpov Chess School, and I did one session of the Kasparov Chess School. Uh, these guys, Karpov and Kasparov, I don't remember them appearing there. They, the school just was bearing their name for sponsors, but it's the top chess coaches, yeah, right? So it was like the talents that it brought, they were giving us lectures. So I still have the handwritten copy of me taking notes from Sveshnikov himself, who was teaching us his wow. opening right just right there in a lecture format <laughs> and so it was like mind-boggling how much access i had to amazing uh chess coaches you know in, in russia and i feel like that was a really powerful uh foundation i had in my chess so when i moved to the us at the age of uh 14 uh i i think a year later i think i initially yeah, I think I initially, my very first tournament, I did not have a rating because in Russia you didn't have ratings. You just had like, you know, I was like candidate master. So it was like 2100, 22, a range between 21, 2200. And my very first term, they asked me, what's your rating? I said, I don't have one. So they put me in the unrated group. <laughs> oh boy. And uh, I won it quite easily. And then they said, ah, you probably should play in the expert section. And so a year later in, in the... Yeah, in 1995, I won the World Open expert section outright, which was my biggest achievement back then. And then also shortly thereafter, I started working with Roman Jinjikashvili, who happened to live in Boston. But the funny part is that it was also a pretty lucky coincidence that at that point, he stopped teaching uh, Gara Kamsky. He was his second coach for many years. And Kamsky was like top three, top four player in the world. Right eating against Karpov, right? And so I sort of got, you know, I'm, I'm just this average, you know, promising kid. I got a coach who was teaching uh, and preparing, you know, the world's like top grandmaster. So that was to me really beneficial, I feel like. And then pretty much my results skyrocketed after that. I think I went from like 2375 USCF to 2500 almost like within a span of like three three or four tournaments wow um i remember in 2000 in night sorry in 1996 i played world open board one or board two last round against Yermolinsky. i got crushed anyways but you know to get to that level i had to play pretty good against ims and gms and i think i like drew a bunch of ims and beat and gms and beat a couple of gms along the way so the progress was exponential just for me having that base foundation, you know, the Soviet school of chess <laughs> and then studying with Roman. 
Um, at what point did you move from uh, the USSR, or I guess maybe the former USSR? Um, at what point did you move to America? Uh, in 1994. Uh huh. So you were still there for a few years after it collapsed. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was what was that like? Was the chess apparatus the same after that, or or what what kind of what had happened? Um, I guess I I was pretty young, so to me, not much has changed other than you know we had to find sponsors as mm-hmm. opposed to the state paying for all the expenses. Right. But I didn't have to pay anything out of my pocket. I remember at that point. Later, it got even more difficult because the funding sort of dried up and sponsors weren't as easily found. But uh, I think for kids who are pretty uh, competitive, they had to find a way to go to all these tournaments, international tournaments, whereas beforehand the state would sponsor them. Right. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, you mentioned that your, your father had a chess club, and I think he's also a FIDE master, right? He's still a... Yeah, he's a FIDE master. He's master of the Soviet Union, which is like IM level. He never got the IM title because he didn't compete enough international master norm tournaments. And that was probably the biggest drawback of the Soviet Union. It was a closed country. You couldn't just leave to play internationally to get the t- titles. So there are a lot of people who are... I am and GM strength who never got their titles as a result. Yeah. And, um, you, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm mostly asking because I'm wondering, like, to what extent um, was there pressure from your dad on you becoming a grandmaster or, or were you very much self-driven? No, not at all. That's one other thing about my dad. He never pushed me to study chess. You know, if I wanted to play video games, I can play video games all day long. He would never, he would not tell me to do chess. So, like I said, the only thing he did is like encourage me to solve these really cool puzzles when I was much younger by giving me ice cream money for each puzzle I get right. But I think at some point, once I got good and I started traveling, I sort of just it became uh, natural for me to just keep wanting to improve. Gotcha. Um, so I think it was mostly, you know, he was just a very good uh, uh, teacher <laughs> he yeah. never forced me to do anything no that's that's great i mean that's that's also i think is good parenting too um, yep. to, you know, um i i guess um I, one thing i'm just as a side note uh has your dad watched uh, queen's gambit at all uh good question i think he did yeah I, i'm not sure if i talked to him in detail about the movie other than we both agreed it was pretty well made especially the chess part of it was really excellent made i agree um for me the biggest connection to the movie is funny enough because if you remember Beth trying to find money to enter her first tournament, she didn't have money to enter. I had the same exact experience. My dad and, and I, we didn't have enough cash with us. We found some old, uh, we, yeah, we found actually a magazine that showed all the local tournaments called Chess Life, right? And then we went to the local tournament and they're like, well, you need like, I don't know, like 20 bucks entry fee for one and then 20 for the other. And we only had enough for one of us to enter but luckily, he brought from Russia a really nice um, collection of chess pins of all the world champions. And he sold it to the tournament director for 20 bucks. So I, that's how my entry wow. got paid. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And I, you must have made some money back on that tournament. Yeah, I think he played in the open section. He probably tied for first. And I played, as you remember, as you remember I said, unrated section. I got probably some money. I don't remember how much. Yeah. Wow. You know, and uh, you did tell me um, before, and also you've mentioned this on Twitter, it still took you 20 years to get the Grandmaster title from when you started. It did, uh, yeah. 
So was there was there a point that you hit like a, a rating plateau at some point? Uh, and I guess what I'm really wondering is like, um, how do you kind of overcome those things as somebody who who has aspirations to become a grandmaster? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, to kind of continue with my story, that after studying with Roman, I sort of reached twenty high twenty four hundred, low twenty four twenty four hundred level USCF, which is like I am strength. So I became an international master relatively quickly. You know, just one norm after another norm. But then it took me, I think, at least six more years to get to Grandmaster from there. And I think the problem for me is I was doing a lot of schoolwork. So I was at university and, you know, all my life I was either in high school or, or, or in college. Although I went to the chess school, University of Maryland, Baltimore County on a chess scholarship. So it's not like I did not have any connection with chess in college, but still computer science degree was quite uh, demanding. I had to do a lot of programming, a lot of projects. And then whenever I go to a tournament, I'd come back. I'd have a lot of things on my plate to finish up. So I just couldn't quite dedicate myself fully to chess. So in some way I got lucky that US has this Samford fellowship. It's this private uh, fellowship for a top player under the of 25 who can apply and I kept applying every year and what really worked for me I think is in the year 2000 when I was 20 years old I also won the U.S. Junior Championship and so that, that was kind of the big achievement that probably helped me to win this fellowship and the fellowship is basically I think it was $25,000 a year or maybe $32,000 a year I don't remember just for chess you can expense all your expense, expenses to them and they pay for everything, all the travel, all the coaches. So I actually took two years off from college, from UMBC to travel the world. And at that point, I, you know, I continued studying with Roman. I played some elite tournaments. I studied by myself. I also studied with uh, Josef Dorfman, who is uh, uh, famous as Kasparov's coach, who has actually a little bit different approach than Ginger. He's more of a hard worker, and just kind of Jinja is more intuitive player, but just a different perspective. And he looked at my games, we analyzed together. I got a really a lot of benefit from that session. I went to France to study with him. And then when I came back after those two years, I felt like I have what it takes to become a grandmaster, but maybe not like the world elite, you know, like when you, because he, at that point, Dorfman worked with like Topalov and and I think he worked with Bakro and he worked with uh, Gelfand a little bit, like all the top players work through him, with him. I realized that I probably don't have quite what it takes to be top 20, top 10 in the world. Maybe if I work really hard, I'll be like top 200 in the world or maybe top 100. But at the same time, I was so burned out from all the chess that I sort of came back to UMBC, finished my studies, got a normal day job in computer science field, and then just continued playing chess more like for fun. Because uh, I was on the roll, right? I was like pretty strong. I am at that point, almost 2,500 rated FIDE. And I don't think I did anything differently other than maybe just experience and the fact that now I have a re reliable source of income. I don't have to think about uh, making money in tournaments because it's expensive to travel, right? And right. play entry fees. And then basically I became a GM, I think, in uh, two years, in 2000. Yeah, 2004, I graduated, and in 2006, I became a grandmaster. 
So the entire road, you know, took me, you know, when I learned the rules of chess at six, 20 years, right? But each step sort of had its own uh, story <laughs> to it. Now, have, have you beaten any world champions? Because um, Nikhil Kamath, um, he recently beat Vichy Anand and he, had, he was like blundering to 800s a couple of days before. So that's, you know, that's pretty crazy improvement if you consider it took you 20 years to, to, to you know, become a grandmaster and he's already beating a grandmaster after like a week. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure if he beat him uh, uh, with his own rather skills, but that's a different story. Yeah. But uh, for me, um, did I play any world champions other than Magnus? That's a good question. I played Rustam Kazimzhanov before he became the FIDE, uh, the knockout champion. Remember, he right. won the knockout tournament and he, he actually played really well against me. I think it was 1999 World uh, Junior Championships. Um, and he, he beat me there. I played Shirov, Mr. Fire on board, right? He's famous. And I drew him in the Accelerate Dragon. So that felt good. Um, and I definitely played Hikaru Nakamura many times. I wouldn't really say I played outside of Magnus. I don't think I played any world champions. Huh. But I did play a lot of you know, top 10, top 20 guys, for sure. Now, you were playing Hikaru, I assume, in these, like, uh, these, like, Masters tournaments in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. He was actually much younger than me, but he was on the same level. We were both strong IMs. And I think at one point, I denied him, denied him a Grandmaster uh, norm. I, he had to score half a point out of two, and I beat him with black, and then he lost to Grandmaster Blotney as well. And he didn't get the norm as early as he wanted. He still... Got it pretty early, right? I think right. He, he one of the youngest ones. Uh, now that, he, of course, his record is broken, but we were both like aspiring IMs at that point. Gotcha. Did you? Uh, I, I. That's that's so. I, you know, one thing that you while well, you mentioned this, um, were you kind of shocked by the chess culture in America once you came here? I mean, you must have been a teenager, and suddenly, I mean, the environment in America surely isn't the same as it was in the, in the USSR. Yeah, you know what? It felt to me more laid back and more relaxed. Uh, just the environment in the chess tournament. Like you can literally, you know, go anywhere in the country and play in any tournament and do it at will or at weekend. To me, that was new. In Russia, everything had to be planned out. You get, you know, you need permissions. You have to be invitations. There's no like back then, like an open tournament that you just show up and play. So this freedom of travel and just playing as many tournaments as you can really... I think benefited me and many other players. I think Alex Yermolinsky wrote a lot about it in his book, which I think one of the greatest books, The Road to Chess Improvement, that he he was just nobody, this average strength I am in Russia. And then he got to the US and, you know, he became a pretty strong grandmaster, you know, top 100 in the world pretty quickly after that. So I feel like that chess culture that US has where you can literally sign up for any tournament and go, you know, really open things up for me. And the other thing I noticed is that how bad certain chess players' um, technical skills were. I guess in Russia, we're all taught the same ways, the same end games, the same books. So everyone is pretty good at like in every area of chess. Whereas in the US, you had this really crazy, like people who have really bad end games, but amazing attackers like Emery Tate, like legendary Emery Tate. And then you know, certain even even certain grandmasters in the U.S. You know, weren't quite schooled as some international masters in Russia. So 
I could see glaring holes in their technical skills, but obviously they had to make up for it with other skills. Yeah, I mean, I, that, yeah, I, honestly, I mean, I, I don't think I would have even continued playing chess if not. I had some really, like, I haven't played too many over-the-board tournaments. I've looked like four or five, but yeah, the fact that I could just, you know, go on my phone, pay $25 on PayPal, show up, you know, the next day, uh, you know, play your four games and have stuff to analyze. I, I really appreciated that. And I mean, so I, I do agree that it, it's it's very enriching and certainly that you can also play anywhere else in the world. I'm going to be traveling to to Seattle and San Francisco this summer. And I'm also looking to just kind of play some mm-hmm. local club tournaments if I'm able to just just because I can just because I want to kind of get that taste of the American you know chess culture. Um, I think that's really cool. I definitely agree with you. I'm also I'm also are you working as a software? No, actually, now? uh which is a good segue to finish up my story. So in 2006, I got a job. I sorry, in 2004, I got a job in, in software industry. In 2006, I became a grandmaster. But then in 2014 uh, or 15, plus or minus, I decided that I really love teaching chess. And I think I've had enough of the 9 to 5 world. <laughs> I wanted to be independent and travel more and spend time more uh, how I want Because I was basically wasting all my vacation on chess tournaments, which is not easy because chess tournament is something which is not, you know, relaxing, right? It's very stressful. It's work. And so I think at some point I realized that, hey, I can do that. And because I have a, I already was teaching chess pretty much all the time. You know, I had two, three students at all, you know, and then chess.com came about and there was a huge chess boom and I did a bunch of videos for them and I still do videos for them now. So I think that sort of helped me say, you know, there is this uh, need and there is this opportunity to teach chess, teach chess, and I love teaching chess. And so that's when I sort of made the switch to full-time chess coach. And then, of course, I could play on my own. Uh, I, c- I can create my own schedule. I can travel the world, and that's how I got to play against Magnus, all these other guys. Yeah, well, I mean... I'm only asking because back when you had more of an, a typical like office job, did your coworkers like care that you were grandmaster? Well, actually, uh, uh, luckily, my very first job out of college, I was very, very supported. Like my coworkers really loved chess, and they were following my, my my results, and they were rooting for me when I became a grandmaster. I think that's definitely helpful when you have a um, working environment wow. which is super supportive. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I mean, how many how many players that who are like make grandmaster are like really are not? I, I feel like you really have to give so many of your hours. Um, it's it's I I think it's very impressive that you managed you know even through college and and uh, through having a job to actually like persevere and get the grandmaster title because um, somebody I mean some people describe having a grandmaster title as like the same work as two PhDs. Yeah, that's a good uh, question. I guess you can uh, pull up and uh, see how many PhDs are there in the country or in the world and count how many grandmasters. And I can tell you that it's probably uh, at least uh, 10 times less grandmasters, if not more. I would say maybe even like like 50 to 100. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah, so it's much, much more difficult to become a chess grandmaster. And keep in mind, I had everything going for me right all the best chess coaches i can get in russia all the ch- all the chess library the culture that supports chess 
right? And then I got lucky with Jinja, right? That I got this amazing chess coach. And even after all of that, it still took me, by modern standards, quite a long time to get to Grandmaster title at the age of 26, which is like unheard of these days. If you're not a Grandmaster by 14, nobody cares about your chess future right. these days. <laughs> like Lucas Ferruja. In case you're wondering, by the way, um, in the United States alone, I just did a quick Google search, okay. 3.1 mm -hmm. million doctoral degrees. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, maybe we're off a couple of zeros there. <laughs> yeah. Although I would imagine that, um, I would imagine that kind of a, like if you, if, if like a grandmaster title is like a degree, I would imagine it's more akin to like, a, like, like a philosophy or a science degree than, uh, mm -hmm. I think. And that's probably a lot lower than like the, um, not, not to disrespect the humanities PhDs at all. I mean, they're, they're also, it's a lot of, it's sometimes even more work and usually takes longer. But I, I think that there's less people who do like the science PhDs, I think. And yeah, and the thing about the grandmaster title, people don't realize it's chess, after all, is a sport, right? So it's not like you're relaxed and you're studying, researching, and writing a paper. You know, if you have to, you have to perform usually under pressure. And you know that if you win the game, right, you may get a title. If you draw the game, you may not get the title. If you lose the game, obviously, all the hard work of a previous tournament goes out the window. The title is based on three norms, and each norm is a tournament performance. So if you're playing extremely well eight games, and then the last game, game nine, you mess up and you lose, right? There goes the opportunity. You have to start all over again. And this kind of pressure puts a lot of psychological pressure on players. And for me, it was really not about getting to Grandmaster per se as my life goal. It was more just like, you know, I'm pretty good at chess. I love playing chess. And I knew it was just a matter of time because for me, I had all the interactions and experience with all the top coaches. And I, I knew what I'm capable of just from playing when I was international master playing GMs. Whereas for some people, if they only single-handedly focus on grandmaster title without having that relaxed mindset and comfort in, in their day-to-day -day life, the pressure could be really tough to handle. And I've seen a lot of people who really struggle in that pressure games, lost round games or money games, right? Where people just kind of fall apart. Self-inflicted pressure, you know, they're, let's say they have the talent and the and the work ethic and, and the capability to get to the title, but psychologically they're not ready. And you don't have that in, in, in PhDs and, uh, and, and the relaxed home environment. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. I, yeah, I think, um... How do you work on psychological pressure? How do you train that? Some people just naturally can handle that, but for, for those people who can't, I mean, how, how do you work on that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I never really worked with a chess psychologist or any psychologist. For me, maybe naturally I was well-rounded uh, because I had access to all the chess, you know, chess culture and the top coaches and just, uh, I never felt the pressure, but there are stories of some of my friends who are strong international masters who kind of cracked under pressure. And what really worked well for them is they completely, you know, at, at one point, let's say they were like, okay, I need to get my norm, my norm, my norm, my norm. The moment they let go of that goal, they're like, I'm just going to play in this tournament in a relaxed mindset. They get the norm. Like when you, when you don't think about it, that's how you usually get the norm. So it's almost like, Part of you has to turn everything off and just focus on enjoying the game. And then the results will come.
I think that's true about chess improvement broadly too. I, 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 like I was, when I started playing chess, I'd set myself this, this arbitrary goal to kind of reach 2000 rating in five years. And I've been playing for like three years and I'm pretty close, but kind of once I started putting pressure on my, once I stopped, I should say putting pressure on myself to say, okay, I need to hit 1500 by my second year. I need it. Once I stopped doing that, I just, I was just skyrocketing because I was playing for the love of the game. I wasn't yeah. playing for no, my that's a good po- that's a good point. Yeah, cuz I I have a couple of students who ask me like, "Okay, I'm like a 2200 player, my goal is to get to IM in like 3 years." And I said, "I mean, that's a pretty serious goal. You're only 2200. I mean, IM is a very serious title, right? That's 2400. Why are you creating this pressure on yourself? You know, what's going to happen if you get it in like less or more time? It's not really going to affect you." So Let's eliminate that goal and say, you you know, you love to play chess. You love to study chess. Well, why don't you do those two things and see how far you can get, right? There's no need to create these, these very concrete goals, I am or GM by this age or by this date, because uh, I feel like that's creating extra pressure in a sport, which is already has a lot of pressure built in because you can play a perfect game for 50 to 60 moves and you can make one blunder and the entire work of that game, six-hour game, goes out the window, right? So right. the pressure is already built in into chess. As long as you enjoy the games, even if you win or lose, and you analyze with your opponent later, you're going to learn. The, the results will come. That's my yeah. attitude. And also, I, I think you mentioned that you just you know, learn about the Sveshnikov from Sveshnikov. Yes. That is, that's just so, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that is just one of these things that tells you how small the chess world is, where you can, like... Like so basically, like two degrees of separation, or even actually one degree of separation. Any of your students, basically, who want to learn the Sveshnikov, can get these insights. You know, from in a way, if you if you say, "Oh, well, I learned this from Sveshnikov," uh, I think that that is just that's really cool, and it's like it tells you like how small the chess world is in a way. Moreover, I can tell you another story that I did not remember because I was too little. Is that Tal visited our little town in Russia where my dad had a chess club, and my dad played blitz with Tal like all night long. And I mean, I, I don't have that recollection because I was too little, but, you know, Tal was in my house playing Blitz with my dad and given a sign the chess club. And I didn't remember any of that. I wish wow. I was older, right? So you're right. Chess world is small and uh, there is a lot of connection that sort of either directly or indirectly that I have to, you know, to the greats, to, to, you know, to the most famous chess players and in, me interacting with Shirov and, and, and Magnus and Jinja and many other famous grandmasters and strong players, and they all have stories, right? Jinja told me stories about Fisher, that he tried to recruit Fisher when he was already uh, non-active in the early 80s for the U.S. Uh, Olympiad team. And Fisher invited him to Pasadena, California, and Jinja played the blitz match that nobody knows about with Fisher which is to me was like an unbelievable story, wow, right? Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing is uh, Ginger said that, um, let me see if I get the story right. So they played both three-minute chess and five-minute chess. Of course, back then, no increment. And I think in three-minute chess, Ginger was holding his own against Fisher. And then in five-minute chess, Fisher was crushing him. And, and Ginger was a, was a strong grand. Was like top ten player, and yeah, at that point, beating grandmasters left and right. And the other thing Ginger told me is that Ginger was showing Fisher one of his own, one of Ginger's recent tournament games, and Fisher said, "No, no, in this position you did this first, then you did that." 
he corrected. No, he's just like, what are you talking about? I remember my own games. And guess what? Fisher was right. Oh, my God. Wow. So that's just a little snippet of how good Fisher was when he was retired. <laughs> and also, like, completely out of the game, but not really. Yeah, totally. I mean, the guy was just a legend just from that story. You know, like, you realize, yeah. you know, he's been out of chess for so many years and still pretty sharp. And now the story, is, uh, as far as I know, is a 64 podcast exclusive. So... Thanks for really thanks for sharing. I mean, the, the, these are these are the, these kind of things that I always love talking about, like the like what I call like the chess lore, like all these stories you you re, you read and like you know you watch videos about all these great players, but you know the the human side of them too. It's like you you get that psychological aspect just from their games and from the stories about them as players. And so like even you Absolutely. talk yeah. like talking about a young Nakamura, like and then Nakamura now is of course he's like a, a celebrity basically, like right, actual right. like like cultural like like a sport cultural icon in America, basically like in this niche, like Twitch, like streamer sphere, but still like, I mean, he's like, he, even though like Fabiano and Wesley and now Levon Aronian are all like better grandmasters than him, but Nakamura is like the, uh, like the, the representative GM of America and, you know, in that way. And, you know, these, these people he plays with, I mean, he trained with Kasparov for a year. And he also, Nakamura did the same, like, U.S. tournament grind that a lot of other, like, U.S. grandmasters did. Yeah, he played in the same Opens as I did, you know, National Open, World Open, all, all the little Opens, right? So, uh, yeah, we go way back. Funny story about Nakamura is that he was really a sore loser when he was a kid. And when I, you know, remember that story that he was really got, got into for his uh, GM norm? I beat him, I was black, and he wouldn't shake my hand. He just left <laughs> maybe in tears, I don't know, but really upset. And I was like, well, that's kind of disrespectful not shaking my my hand. But at the same time, everybody knew that Nakamura is a sore loser. And once he loses, he's like that, right? And the other thing about Nakamura is he hated draws so much that he would play a dead equal, you know, end game, like three on three on the same wing with Rooks until like... Yeah, it was like insane. Like, why would he do that? But I feel maybe these two things, the fact that he was really, really strong competitor and did not want draws and wanted to win, maybe those actually are the triggers that kind of made him who he is, right? Because he's like very sharp, uncompromising player and that's at that point. And uh, you need to be really good uh, and, and, and aggressive and sharp to, to break through the top 10, top 20 ranks. Once he got to top 10, he totally changed his style. He became, you know, more like Queen's Gambit decline player and more solid. But still, uh, he already had it in him what other kids did not have. Whether it's good or bad, it's a different story, right? Like, obviously, you know, you probably want a little bit better sportsmanship than what he had. Right. But he got better. As he, you know, as a kid, he, yeah, he couldn't control himself as well. I think he got much better. Of course, now he's a different person. But I feel like these little character flaws could benefit for some some of these chess players. I mean, even if you look at guy, I mean, I, even recently there was some some uh, some Reddit controversy with him that he's a sore loser and like like mean to to his fellow streamers. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, I'm mean, not to excuse that kind of behavior, of course. But even if you look at like Kasparov, Kasparov also despised losing and also was a sore loser. Like when Rajabov destroyed him in. Uh, when Rajabo was a teenager and Kasparov, I think like had, he went on a whole rant about how like it was a disgrace to chess. I don't know if you know this story. 
uh, like Rajaba was a teenager, like beat Kasparov. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I think like, Rajaba was like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. yeah, some dubious night sack, and 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 but you know, and this was Kasparov, like like basically still world champion, like embarrassing a poor like teenager, basically. So I mean, again, not I'm not excusing the behavior by any means, but but I I do see where you're coming from that these kinds of like uncompromising like will to win at all costs, like even on like like on, on a interpersonal level, like um, yeah, I mean that 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 can make you very good. That's that's definitely true. Yeah, um, there is a similar story about Magnus Carlsen. Again, I have heard of the story. I'm not. I wasn't there, but during one of the tournaments when he was already pretty good, maybe you know, between 16 and 18 or so, um, on an off day, everyone was playing soccer, and you know, all the chess players kind of casually play for fun, and they decided to kick the ball. Um, Let's see, how would, would they play? And it's like, oh, yeah, whoever scores the most goals on the goalie. And they would rotate who the goalie is. And there was a female chess player. So whenever she would be in goals, everyone would take it easy. You know, because they're like, well, we're a little bit, you know, we don't want to hit the ball so strong that it may cause some, some, something. And anyway, so everyone was kind of, it's a, it's a casual game. Everyone's having fun. When Magnus took the ball and she was in goal, he hit the strongest he could because he wanted to win so badly. <laughs> Yeah, wow. But I mean, Magnus clearly was a good sport to you recently. I mean, Isle of Man. And, uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. He's definitely, you know, even on his, you know, there were some moments even when he was playing soccer. I remember, I think, in Azerbaijan and the referee was playing. The referee is like 80-year-old and Magnus did something that he's not supposed to do, some kind of a soccer move that referee fell. He apologized later. But again, in the heat of the moment, Magnus is probably the fiercest competitor out there. And to get to the world number one and to stay at world number one, if you're not competitive, you know, you're not going to get there. So I feel like these qualities, which are may not be, you know, great uh, character, you know, as a personal character qualities, do help some of these guys to stay there at the top. And that's, I mean, you also can't get that cut. You see the results of that psychology in games, but it's also like, like, you need to like how how to train that kind of mindset. I don't have a killer mindset in chess. I, I like actually hate losing. If I play board games, if I lose on the board game, I think I'm gonna be upset. But no, not I, to I, the same yeah. extent as these guys are. But I feel like it's almost like you know we as chess players, we're also sports sports people. We're really competitive. But my level of competitiveness is not the same as like Nakamura right. and Carlson is, for example. I'm a little bit more well rounded. But I think you almost need a little bit of competitiveness just to like get through to take a lot because we lose a lot, right? When you lose the game, you really need to challenge that loss into getting better and to work harder and to do better next game. And without that, you know, if you're not if you don't care about the result of the game, you may not uh, try as hard, for example. Yeah, you'll never you'll never try to win. You have to push yourself to win. But I, I definitely like I don't play sharply and I, I kind of. When I when I see what I call a drawn position, uh, like you know, like you said, like you know, three pawns on each side. I mm-hmm. so, sometimes I don't have that kind of right now. I, I at least I I don't have that kind of like killer mentality that oh I can win everything, and you know that's kind of what what that that could be an impediment to my improvement even. So, but it's it's I feel like it's almost like something intangible that you you just kind of need you need to have it. If you don't have it, you need to like make yourself have it. This like will to win. On the other hand, uh, you know, you have uh, Kramnik and Petrosian who said that they never even 
you know, considered becoming world champions and they sort of became world champions. So you have, and Vishay Anand is the nicest guy ever, right? Yeah. So I don't know how much, I mean, they're definitely competitors, but I don't know to what extent uh, those character traits help them. Maybe being more rounded and more philosophical about life and more relaxed is what keeps them motivated, right? Like Anand is probably the most rational, well-rounded person ever <laughs> right. as a chess player. And yet he is still one of the greatest. Right. And I mean, but even, but even like uh, Anand, when he was younger, had a, a much like sharper style and certainly Kramnik in the, I think it was the 2013 candidates where he just suddenly completely switched up his style. That's and when, true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I do think you kind you kind of see this taste of like sharp chess. I think you need to be especially competitive in sharp chess because you, you can, you'll never win sharp chess. If you're not like playing for initiative, if you're not like sitting there calculating, you have to do everything that the good competitors do when you're playing sharply. That's kind of why I stopped playing sharply because I don't want to work as hard. Exactly. Uh, You're right. Sharp chess requires a lot of calculation. And, you know, even Kramnik, with all his endgame technique and positional understanding, he's still an extremely precise and uh, good calculator at the board. You know, so even though he is not known as much for that style as, like, Kasparov or Tal, I mean, to an extent, every single player who is in the top 20 or in the top 100 have that skill. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have to be like very like universally well-rounded too to be at that level. So, yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, um, I do want to just uh, end off this podcast by talking a bit about your, you know, you're a bit of an opening guru. Uh, you wrote, like you said, you wrote a book um, about 15, 16 years ago. It's uh, like a like uh, yeah, I think around 2005, uh, both with Ginger and Albert called Chess Openings Explained, both for black and for white. It's repertoire books. Um, and so we, you know, when we were preparing the episode a little bit, um, you had this, this great metaphor about like, I asked you and I'll ask again, like, how has the, um, how has the chess opening scene, not, not just on the top level, cause obviously that's always like changing. Um, but especially like at the club level, the tournament level, like you have new students, like for many years and, uh, you know, they're watching these Gotham videos now. And so kind of like the, the opening scene changes. So I, I, you had this very nice metaphor or I guess technically a simile, but, um, right. The chess openings are like fashion are like clothes. It changes. Right. So, uh, the thing about chess openings, you know, and I had a pretty long chess career is that they go in and out of fashion. And what drives the fashion are the top players. So I'll give you an example. If Magnus Carlsen were to play the Accelerate Dragon, everyone's going to play Accelerate Dragon. It's going to percolate down to the club players. So what happened is Kramnik used the Berlin defense against Kasparov in the year 2000, and he became the world champion. And so all the you know top players in the world realize that it's a solid opening, is black. And now you don't see a tournament or a world chess championship candidate without the Berlin these days, right? And uh, and then at some point, Magnus invested into Sveshnikov, right, for his match against Caruana. And guess what? For probably the next two, three years, Sveshnikov became the number one opening, even to the club players, it's percolated down. So I, f I have a feeling that, you know, you, you take some abandoned opening that nobody plays anymore. You know, within a few years, if somebody's going to play, some elite player comes up with a fresh idea, it's going to be fashionable again. Right. And I mean, even even like uh, the London system, just because it's this easy opening to teach. So now there's been this renaissance of London theory where you have anti-Londons. Exactly. That's yeah. just studying and sharp <laughs> Londons and like these early. And the Jabava attack with the knight C3 instead of C3. Yeah, there's yeah. all these different ways of playing it.
But it, it's it's beautiful though because I you know I think um like like even starting openings I I've had some people in the podcast like comment say you don't really need to start starting openings if you're like twenty two hundred. Um, I personally disagree with that mostly because I feel like most of my chess improvement has been from studying openings. And I think like my opening repertoire is, is I really struggle with all other aspects of chess, but I've even, you know, I've used, uh, the show sponsor aim chess, um, for, for many months. And mm -hmm. the, these analytics have shown me that my opening repertoire is about 200 or 300 rating points higher than, than my opponents on average. Like the kind of positions is equivalent to like what 2300 player or 2200 player gets online out of their openings, which oh, I'm wow, very, that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm very proud of that. But that, but that also tells me that I need to work on these middle games and also my end games are, are severely lacking. So if I don't get these good positions, I really just get crushed because I don't know how to play. But why I'm saying this is because for me, I think like, when, when I'm teaching my friends, because a lot of my friends, because of this Queen's Gambit boom and, uh, you know, just being on Twitch and seeing chess suddenly streaming, um, like with XQC and these people. So some of my friends uh, like started coming up to me. Um, that's like this last summer and even this like spring, like uh, this time, like one year ago and saying, hey, like, do you want to play? Do you want to teach me an opening? And, uh, you know, it's it's very fun for me to kind of find openings that suit my friends styles even as they're just kind of coming to their own as like you know starting chess players people who are like 900 1000 like helping them figure out what kind of chess they want to play like you know you know you can talk about like you know blunders and you know skill levels but right, everybody right. should be allowed to have fun in chess and you know finding the opening that suits you is like fashion it's it's the kind of style and it changes with you over time too i remember when i started playing certainly when i was a much weaker player i did like to play much sharper chess because i felt it gave me a lot of chances against better players so i played stuff like the dragon i played like the grunfeld at one point i played uh i, I experimented with the king's gambit um now i'm more of a positional player i play like a carl khan like i said the queen's gambit accepted with white i play like the exchange Roy lopez mm -hmm. i kind of play these things where i look for positional advantages slightly simplified middle games um because that's the kind of thing that suits me now i could completely change in a year exactly yeah um but i guess like something i want to ask you is as a, as a coach um who's worked with many students is like how do you help people find the openings that work for them yeah no that's a great question and my main sort of thing is i have to understand what my students goals are so if you know if i have a new student who just watched the movie and who just wants to play chess for fun online i realize that they're probably not gonna enjoy hardcore endgame study right. on a daily basis right i mean it is after all a pretty serious time investment to end games and get better at end games um you know it's a different story if i have a promising kid who is already maybe like 2200, who's never studied end games, then maybe I, I will say, well, you're going to get the most benefit from these hardcore end game uh, study sessions. But as far as openings are concerned, like if somebody loves the London system and they're just a club player who who is not super ambitious, and I know that the London system may, may not be the most principal opening, I will say, you know what, if it works for you, and I had a few students who played the London system, I'm, I'm going to help you. You know the main ideas. You just want to get out of the opening with a playable position and just play chess. That's great. There is actually not much to study other than ideas and plans in the London system compared to like the open Sicilian, right? If somebody is a very ambitious player who loves studying mainline theory, who loves buying books, uh, either in print or chessable these days, and they want to learn mainline theory, be my guess, right? It's not. It's not bad. It's not bad to do that. So I feel like. 
it 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 has to be almost like customizable to an individual and uh, i would cater to that uh, of course i still would recommend an accelerate dragon to a dragon player because if i see they're getting killed in the mainline dragon every game and they and they're struggling i would say why don't you try the accelerate dragon you know you're gonna avoid all these crazy attacks on you and so you're gonna get great positions in that case it's an easy choice right but if somebody loves Karakhan, would i impose a dragon on them maybe not unless i i realize that you know they're playing Karakhan and they're afraid to attack they're afraid to play aggressive chess and in that way giving them an aggressive opening it's sort of like having them come out of their shell a little bit and even if they lose a little bit at first it's okay because they're gonna realize that there is a different way of playing sharp openings and different ideas in that case maybe i'll do that uh, yeah and i also think that like if you're an aggressive player you should try to play quieter openings and vice versa just because that's like passive chess improvement because you're going to get if we if we talk about like basically in chess playing the position and you have a position that requires you to sacrifice or to play for like a, a pawn storm you're going to have to learn how to play those positions to win games whether it's online or over the board and so like you you get better that way just just by just by getting that kind of experience so yeah, i think that's it's very absolutely. insightful um I guess uh, the, the last question I have for the podcast is what I ask everybody. So long-time listeners or new listeners. Um, so what I always ask everybody, uh, I get wildly different answers. Um, if you had one opening, you had to like teach any player from, you know, the 2,200 students you have to true beginners, I guess, what would that be and why? I guess I'm not going to be too... Uh... <laughs> Uh, unambitious here and say the Accelerate Dragon, given right. that I've been talking about this opening uh, pretty much the entire podcast, because I feel like it's very easy to learn. Um, it's very easy for white to go wrong there. You know, again, I'm teaching it um, to to play as black against e4. And then I really love the King's Indian defense, even though I realize it's probably a little bit riskier opening than the Accelerate Dragon, because black is surrendering the center. But there's so many beautiful attacks and beautiful games. Even I've played King's Indian all my life. I'm still enjoying these games. I feel like uh, both the Accelerated and the King's Indian is what I would recommend and teach. Yeah, I mean, the, the one question I have just before we end is why, why the Accelerated Dragon and not like the Hyper Accelerated Dragon or the Pterodactyl? Um, I guess I should be, I should clarify that I, I would actually teach the hyper accelerated dragon move order. And the only reason is to avoid the Rasalimo because after e4, c5, knight f3, knight c6, bishop b5 is its own opening. And most people these days split 50-50 between d4 and bishop b5, but bishop b5 sidestep, sidesteps the accelerate. So right. I would actually teach g6 on move two and there are some little nuances, of course, white can take on d4 with a queen. White can also play c3, but I've played it all my life. Uh, that's what we recommend in the black book. I feel like it's easier to deal with than with Rasalimo. So uh, you're right. In, in my case, I would probably gravitate toward the hyper-accelerated move order. Well, there you go, guys. If you're looking, if you're a new player or maybe a stronger player looking for something new to try, uh, definitely give give the hyper accelerated dragon slash accelerated dragon a good look. I can tell you, someone who's uh, a pretty serious like uh, club level player that it gives me a lot of trouble. So, uh, yeah, 
Um, yep, and you can download uh, the entire books from uh, our website. It's uh, chessopeningsexplained.com, one word. And uh, I usually just post uh, little update videos with PGNs for all the topical uh, uh, openings there as well. So you have a Twitter account at Eugene Perel, uh, P-E-R-E-L. Uh, it's a great follow, especially if you're getting onto chess Twitter. It's a really supportive space, like I said before. Um, and uh, Eugene does... Uh, he does a really great job of, uh, you know, just, just asking questions about like, for example, recently it was like how to lose quickly, neglect development and try to make as many moves as one piece. <laughs> so these little, these little chess, chess bites kind of that you can get, um, just in your, in your Twitter feed. Um, you can also find, uh, Eugene's YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to just plug that, I'm, I, I'm forgetting. Is it all? Yeah, it's basically the same as the website chess right. opening to explain. Uh, I was just trying to remember if it was that or was your name, but yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be chess openings explained on YouTube. Um, I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast. I hope to have you again Um, to my listeners. I want to really thank you guys for listening. Once again, Um, don't forget if you're interested in getting an aim chess subscription, use code David 30 to get 30% off your subscription. You get a lot of great tools out of that. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'll see you guys next week, I guess. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you, David.